This past Sunday morning, we addressed what marriage is not. So this morning, we are focusing on what marriage is. Um, Hopi and I both grew up in the, uh, were raised in the Kansas City area. And the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library is located in a Kansas City suburb called Independence, Missouri. And that library hyphen museum is a definite must, must tourist attraction. So much important U.S. history happened during the Truman administration. Probably no other U.S. president inherited this nation's highest office during a more difficult time than did Mr. Truman. He had been Franklin Delano Roosevelt's vice president less than three months, 82 days, in fact, when the president died suddenly from a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Mr. Truman had been summoned to the White House and told about the president's death. And after hearing that announcement, he immediately said to Mrs. Roosevelt, he asked if there was anything he could do to be of help. And she responded, no, no, no. Is there anything we can do for you? You're the one in trouble now. Up to that point in time, Roosevelt had not communicated much to his vice president. Truman had been briefed, had not been briefed on domestic and foreign policies. He was uninformed about the major recent initiatives related to the Second World War. And he had no clue about the Manhattan Project, which was about to test the first atomic bomb. In fact, the general secretary of the Communist Party in the USSR at that time was the infamous Joseph Stalin. And because the Soviets were so gifted at espionage, Stalin knew about the atomic bomb testing long before Truman did. But not long ago, the Truman Library made public some 1,300 discovered letters that the late president wrote to his wife, Bess, throughout the course of a half century. Remember that this was long before email, texting, Twitter, and Facebook. Mr. Truman held to a lifelong rule that he would write to his wife every day that the two of them were apart. He followed that basic practice no matter if he were performing diplomatic duties on international soil, or if Bess had left the White House to spend time at their independence home, if the two of them were separated geographically, President Truman was faithful to communicate to Mrs. Truman through personal letters. The thing that has fascinated historians was not the political and even historical content of those communications, but just the fact the President of the United States made time from his crowded schedule and his interaction with heads of powerful nations, he made time to sit down and actually write a letter to his wife. Mr. Truman had a sincere and strong commitment to his marriage. His predecessor, unfortunately, did not share that same commitment. Franklin Delano Roosevelt married his fifth cousin, once removed. Her name was Eleanor. President Roosevelt had multiple adulterous relationships throughout his marriage. One of his sons, Elliot, claimed his father had a 20-year affair with his private secretary, Marguerite Lehan. But the most notable indiscretion was to um, his longtime mistress, Lucy Mercer. Mrs. Roosevelt had hired Lucy as a personal secretary in 1914. 
1918, Eleanor Roosevelt discovered letters both of them had exchanged that revealed the secret affair. Mrs. Roosevelt confronted her husband and offered him a divorce. Franklin's mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, was adamant that there would be no divorce because that would have ruined her son's political career. Eleanor then gave her husband an ultimatum. Stop seeing his mistress or else she would file for a divorce herself. FDR did not want to sacrifice his political career so he promised to never see Ms. Mercer again. But the president did not keep that promise. And he continued to see this other woman until his death. And sometimes Roosevelt's own daughter, Anna, helped arrange those meetings. The Secret Service even assigned a code name to Roosevelt's friend and mistress. She was called Mrs. Johnson. In fact, Ms. Mercer was present in the room in Warm Springs, Georgia, at the time the president collapsed from the cerebral hemorrhage that brought about his death. Eleanor was not there. According to a 1966 memoir authored by former Roosevelt aide Jonathan Daniels, Roosevelt, Mrs. Roosevelt was not there because from the time Mrs. Roosevelt found out about the Mercer affair, the marriage existed in name only and continued as a strictly political and business relationship between them. Mrs. Roosevelt even established a separate residence in Hyde Park and the emotional connection between them had been so damaged that when FDR asked Eleanor to come back home because of his deteriorating health, she refused. Both presidents illustrated the oftentimes radical, diverse state of marriage in more modern times. And we're going to discuss marriage this morning, starting at Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, notice, the man and his wife. That statement confirms that this text is a reference to marriage. The man and his wife. And we're not ashamed. It's interesting, Jesus quoted from this same passage again in Matthew 19, verse 5. Paul also quoted from this passage in Ephesians 5, 31. So this is an extremely important text. These words constitute the earliest definitive statement ever made about marriage. So using this Genesis passage, we're going to address marriage's irreducible minimum. Meaning this is the nuts and bolts of marriage. It doesn't get any more basic than this. And the first part of that core idea is described as let go of our parental ties. Let go of our parental ties. Notice the first phrase at the beginning of verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. God said a man, anticipating marriage, should leave his parents. That's also applicable to the woman. In most cases, leaving someone's parents means moving out of the parental household. But it means more than that. It means changing our familial priorities. Letting go of our parental ties means shifting our priorities and responsibilities from our marriage, our parents, to our marriage partner. 
someone still in the home before marriage is responsible to meet his parents' expectations. But in marriage, he is no longer responsible to his parents in that same sense because he is now responsible to meet his mates' expectations. Again, don't misunderstand this. But this letting go in marriage doesn't mean to neglect, to ignore, to dishonor, and to disrespect someone's parents. It doesn't mean that. It just means the principal focus should be on the marriage and not on the parents. Leaving our parents in marriage means letting go of that domestic unit in order to form another domestic unit ourselves that is totally separate from our parents. Married children are to be loose from the parents in three basic areas. One, in a physical sense. Married children should move out and establish a residence separate from that of the parents. Only under severe and desperate economic conditions. And there might be some other isolated exception. Only under these rare conditions should married children be permitted to move back into the parents' home and then only for as short a time as possible. If married children do return to the home, then the parents will be tempted to continue to parent them. And that's problematic. A man shall leave his father and mother means that after someone is married, his actual street address should change. He or she should move out. Second, children should also leave in a financial sense. A financial sense. Married children shouldn't expect parents to continue to give them financial assistance. Because as a parent, there is a fine line between being helpful and starting to interfere in an adult child being responsible to provide for himself. And as parents, we should be careful not to cross that line. Parents should insist that children that have left to start their own marriages transfer that practical material and financial dependence from off the parents and onto God. If a parent constantly comes to his adult child's rescue financially, then that child is never going to learn to trust God for his financial needs. As long as mom and dad are there to bail him out of a jam. I never once ask my parents for financial assistance after marriage. Not once. I almost never ask prior to marriage. Other than room and board, I was on my own financially from about age 15. Our married sons have never asked us for financial assistance. We have um, once or twice offered to help because there was a situation that they were unable to meet. We offered to help, but they have never asked us. Because marriage means children should be financially independent of the parents. Third, children should also leave in an emotional sense. If I'm officiating a marriage ceremony, then I'm going to ask the bride's nervous father this question. And who is giving this woman in marriage? And the normal response is, her mother and I do. That's because the best gift a parent can give a child that is about to be married is to release that child 
to enable that child to enter into that marriage, to actually give that child away, to break the emotional parental cord. Once again, please, please don't misunderstand this principle. Letting go in marriage, letting go of those parental ties does not mean, does not mean to dishonor our parents. Doing that would contradict the fifth commandment. Exodus 20 verse 12 reads, Honor your father and your mother. And that injunction is repeated again in the New Testament. Letting go in marriage does not mean to cut off parental contact. It doesn't mean married children cannot attend the same church as the parents. To me it is exciting to see multiple related generations in the same congregation. Letting go in marriage doesn't mean to get so tied up in our own agendas and busyness that we just ignore our parents. It is common knowledge that some adult children put their aged parents in a convalescent home and then completely ignore them and never call them, never visit them. That is unacceptable to God. First Timothy 5, notice verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them, meaning let those children and or grandchildren, first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now notice verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith, meaning he has denied the Christian faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Someone's parents are considered part of someone's household. And to not care for members of our household, including our aged parents, means that we have denied the Christian faith, and in God's estimation, we are worse than, not the same as, worse than a notorious unbeliever. People, that cannot be good. Verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Christians are to care for their own relations so that the church can care for those who have no relatives to care for them. Otherwise, it would be just an additional burden on the church. In some cases, it might be necessary to bring someone's older parents into a married child's home so that this child can care for them. That's what my parents did for my maternal grandparents. Our parents moved them in, cared for them until death. And I've offered to do the same thing for my own mother, but she doesn't feel comfortable doing that. She thinks I would drive her crazy. <laughs> I know she would drive me crazy. <laughs> the point is that letting go in marriage does not mean we have permission to dishonor our parents. Letting go in marriage means we change in how we relate to our parents after marriage. It means to break the parental child bond. It means to sever the emotional dependent strings that held them together in the child's formative stages. If parental ties are brought into a marriage, it can have an extremely adverse effect on the marriage bond. 
I remember counseling a couple that had separated because of some marriage problems. And after a number of counseling sessions, uh, both of them decided it would be better to reunite and move back in together. But to illustrate the strength of someone's parental ties, she admitted to me, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to get back together because it's just going to upset my mother. The problem was that she had never cut those parental apron strings. In an emotional sense, she had never left home. So the first component to marriage is letting go, leaving, letting go of our parental ties. The second part in marriage is hold on to our maiden marriage. Hold on to our maiden marriage. So putting them together, the irreducible minimum in marriage is letting go and holding on. Letting go and then holding on. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, notice, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Hebrew word that is translated as joined means to be glued together. To be glued together and to cling to one another. Moses mentioned diseases that cling to the body. Job mentioned bones that cling to the skin. And both men used that same Hebrew word to describe those things. This word gives us a picture of the permanence of marriage. There is a joining together that takes place in marriage. Most often, this being joined together and becoming one flesh, I've said this before, most often becoming one flesh is described as a direct reference to sexual relations inside marriage, the sexual union inside marriage, and it is. There's no question about that. But the principal context is about leaving someone's parental household and creating a new familial unit through holding fast to someone's marriage partner and becoming one flesh. A frequent question, a question often asked in this secular permissive society is about the need for a marriage ceremony and the necessity of obtaining a marriage license. People sometimes ask if it's okay if we just if we just mentally assent to marriage and just sort of cohabitate I mean do we need a ceremony do we need a license the text would tell us no since marriage is about leaving one's parents and creating a new familial unit there must be some sort of legal action to notify society that a new familial unit has been created Marriage is the creation of a new domestic unit and the marriage license we receive identifies to the government that this new familial unit has been created. Somehow society must be informed that this covenant has been made and that this new household has been created. So no, cohabitation is not acceptable to God. This holding on means marital permanence. These instructions are to leave and then cleave, sever and then bond, loosen and then secure, depart from and then attach to. I want us to notice that this term joined has three basic meanings. 
One, it means to pursue someone. Pursue someone. It means to make inroads into something. As one want-to-be bride said, I'm chasing him until he catches me. Second, it means to be joined together. Being joined together as partners in marriage, and please don't miss this, being joined together as partners in marriage is more emotional at first. But then as the marriage goes on, and time passes, the joining becomes less and less emotional. And it is at that point that a non-emotional, conscious decision must be made on the part of both maids to remain joined together. The famous blues guitarist, songwriter, and singer, B.B. King, died just this past month. One of his signature songs, recorded in 1969 and ultimately his biggest hit, was, anyone want to guess? Geniuses. Just geniuses. The thrill is gone. And from an emotional perspective, the thrill might be gone. But that doesn't have to mean the end of marriage. Hopi and I were married in the summer of 1970, so do the math. The reason we have remained married so long is not because we feel this incredible, spine-tingling, earth-shattering, thunder-crashing, crazy emotional connection to one another. It's not because we just thrill one another. I don't think. I might, I might double-check on that. Follow me, Mike. This is totally unrehearsed. This is true reality sermonizing. She has no idea. So Mrs. Webb, let me ask you a question. Now be honest, this is the house of God. God is witnessing this response. So do I just thrill you? Yes? Okay, we'll talk afterwards. Okay, all right. Anyway, I can't believe I could thrill anyone, but anyway, she's sweet, and uh, she has tolerated me, and so there you go. All right. Well, I can, I can assure you, I'm not all that thrilling, but it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to our marriage. We are still married after all this time because we made a conscious decision to remain married. If we have problems, and we do have problems none of which I am responsible for. But if we have problems, if we do, we work them out instead of walking out. Third, to be joined together. You know, I do stupid stuff like that just to help make you feel sorry for Hopi. Anyway, to keep fast together, to keep fast together. The analogy I use to describe this third meaning is someone welding some of us are, have been welders, welding two pieces of metal together so that those pieces of metal are bonded to the extent that they can never come apart. From a biblical perspective, it would seem that divorce is permissible under certain limited conditions. 
And we're going to mention those conditions in just a moment. But according to Scripture, it was the intention of God that once we are married, that we are to remain married. Genesis teaches us that we are to cleave. Cleave is the old English word used in the authorized translation. We are to cleave or to be joined together, and that means in marriage we are stuck to one another. Not stuck with one another, but stuck to one another in this commitment to remain married. Some people have forgotten that the marriage vows each of us recited were made first to God and then made to one another. And those vows said, until death do us part. Although sometimes I add the phrase, until death do us part, or Jesus returns. But marriage is a solemn promise to remain married. Now, I am not naive. I realize that a substantial percentage of people in this congregation have been divorced. I understand that. I don't know the exact percentage. I would guess probably one-third or more of the marriages in this room are second or third marriages. I know of one case where someone is on their fifth marriage. And this message is not intended to impose unnecessary guilt on people that have been divorced. That's the last thing I want to do. But it is important that we understand the biblical position on divorce. God hates divorce. Malachi 2 verse 16 reads, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. God hates divorce because divorce means that someone or someones, it might be both of them, have been unfaithful to the solemn covenant of marriage. And God hates divorce because divorce always brings harmful consequences to those partners who do divorce, and especially does it bring harm to the children of that divorce. This foolishness that the kids will be okay is wrong. I have spent in a career dealing with the scars of divorce from children that are now adults and still suffering from the fact their parents split up. Because divorce in Scripture is permitted only in certain cases, and then only because of someone's sin, and because divorce is not part of God's original plan for marriage, all Christians then should hate divorce, as God does, and should pursue it only, only, only if there is no other recourse. Legal and biblical divorce was and is a concession to the innocent partner so that the faithful partner is no longer bound to a marriage commitment that has been violated. The Christian should never consider divorce except in specific circumstances, and even in those circumstances, divorce should be only pursued with reluctance because there is no other available recourse. Now, let me mention some biblical grounds for divorce. One is unrepentant sexual sin. Unrepentant sexual sin. Matthew 5, verse 32. 
Jesus said, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now the references in these uh, passages imply unbiblical divorces. Chapter 19, verse 9 from Matthew. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. The first biblical exception to marriage, the first exception offering the innocent partner an out, is found in Jesus' use of the Greek word pornea. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Pornea translated as sexual immorality. Pornea is a generic term that is the same as fornication. And pornea, or fornication, includes all sexual sin. From last time we learned sexual relations that happen outside monogamous heterosexual marriage is considered pornea, or fornication. But if one partner violates the marriage through sexual sin and forfeits his marriage commitment, then the faithful partner is put into an extremely difficult situation. After all means are exhausted to bring that sinning partner to repentance, the Bible then permits release for the faithful partner through divorce. But again, only as a last resort. I might add this, I believe, since pornea is all-encompassing of all immoral sexual act and attitude, as, in for, as is fornication, I believe that if a man has a serious, prolonged addiction to pornography, and if he's been given numerous opportunities to repent and seek professional help, and he refuses to do that time after time, because pornography is considered pornea. It is considered sexual sin. And even though this man has not acted outside marriage, he has been consistently immoral inside the marriage. So I believe, this is my opinion, the woman has biblical permission to dissolve that marriage. That is not just a hypothetical example. I just read, just read, a research project that stated that in an average evangelical church 68 percent of the men consume pornography on a regular basis. If this is an average congregation almost seven out of ten men in this room consume pornography on a regular basis I hope and pray we aren't an average congregation. That is frightening. Again, though, even in cases where there has been sexual sin, I have seen numerous adulterers and adulteresses thoroughly repent and have seen them totally restored to a forgiving mate. So, again, the critical word is repentant. If there is repentance, I believe there is hope for the marriage. Second, a second... Um, exception clause is abandonment by an unbeliever. Abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 12 through 15. 
But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, meaning if someone is married to a woman who is a non-believing person, she is a non-Christian, notice, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Often it happens, some, there's a marriage and one of the mates becomes a Christian, the other has not. And in this case, the man has become a Christian, his wife is not, but she's okay with that. She's content to continue the marriage. Well, then he, he shouldn't divorce her. Verse 13. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe. Again, a non-Christian. If he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Same thing is true, just reversed. In this case, the man is a non-Christian. She is a Christian, but he's okay. He said, that's fine. Let's continue so there shouldn't be a divorce. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, meaning if the non-Christian mate says, I'm sorry, I'm out of here, let him depart. Paul said, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Meaning that if our unbelieving mate says, I'm sorry, I, 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 I'm just not compatible with this Christianity thing, and wants out, the Christian partner does not have to remain under bondage in marriage. The Christian partner has permission from God to say, okay, I understand. The second reason for permitting a divorce is in cases where an unbelieving, non-Christian mate does not want to continue to be married to his or her Christian partner. If an unbelieving, non-Christian wants to abandon the marriage, if that person wants out, it would be better to let them divorce. And God permits that. I have heard this argument. Some people argue a man's irresponsible negligence to financially support his household is the same as in-home or in-house abandonment. We just read that such a man that does not support his household, according to 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, is worse than an unbeliever. So even if he professes to be a Christian, he's probably not because he's acting as a non-Christian. But even if he's still in the same house because he has nowhere to go since he has no income because he is too lazy to get a job or keep a job and so his wife totally supports him and he's completely negligent, completely irresponsible, um, he has completely abandoned his responsibilities as a husband. And so some believe and argue then that also fits under this category of abandonment. A third possible ex exception is excommunication from the church. Giving the church permission to pronounce the innocent partner eligible for a certificate of divorce. I might add this up front, this position is not widely accepted 
among conservative evangelicals. This position states that if a sinning partner continues to be unrepentant and church discipline has been enacted and that discipline has been unsuccessful, this man or this woman has just refused to repent and change. Then the congregational authorities, meaning elders, pastors, the church council or governing board, the church's authoritative leadership are to consider that unrepentant person the same as a non-Christian and turn him over to Satan. That is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That means he or she would then be expelled or dismissed or excommunicated from the church. This argument would then authorize the church to give permission to the faithful and innocent partner the right to a divorcement. Uh, for example, this perspective on divorce might release someone from marriage to an unrepentive, um, and that is the critical word, unrepentive, disciplined mate who has had a serious long-term and severe anger management problem or a long-standing substance abuse problem or a track record of domestic violence. One of the chief proponents of this third position would be Dallas megachurch pastor Dr. Tony Evans who has his doctorate in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, former chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys. He is a prolific author. He's one of my favorites. But to be honest, this is not a popular position among conservative evangelicals, so I can't be just super dogmatic about it. But I do believe it has some merit, and I do believe it is something to think about. But please understand, these are three exceptions. But please understand that although God hates divorce, God doesn't hate divorcees. God hates divorce, but God doesn't hate divorcees. One, not all divorce is sin, as we have just seen. Some legalistic people argue that all divorce is wrong, but that position is problematic because in Jeremiah 3 and verse 8, God gave His chosen people, the nation of Israel, a bill of divorcement. So not all divorce is unbiblical, as we have just demonstrated. Second, even unbiblical divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Even a divorce that has no biblical merit to it at all is not the unpardonable sin. Unbiblical divorce is just as forgivable as our other sins. In our Discovering Membership class, we emphatically state that divorced people will never be considered second-class congregants at this church. There are divorced men who have served as elders. A divorce, it would be a case-by-case -case situation, but a divorce does not prohibit someone from serving here. God loves divorced people, and so do we. So if you have been divorced, and it wasn't a biblical divorce, if you didn't have one of these exceptions to release you from that marriage commitment, if it was a pre-salvation divorce, meaning it happened before you accepted Jesus, or even if it was a post-salvation divorce, I would suggest doing this. I would suggest confessing that unbiblical divorce to God. Just confess it. Say, dear God, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Repent from that wrongdoing in marriage, meaning change your mind about what you did.
Receive parental forgiveness from God and then act forgiven. Reject any more guilt and then just move on. And if you're now in another marriage, then just determine to put the past in the past. Don't rewind it and determine to make that marriage last. I once buried a man who had been married 67 years. And it was his second marriage. He made a mistake. He realized it. He confessed it to God. He received forgiveness. He remarried an amazing woman and had a lifetime of happiness. During England's most difficult times in the late 1930s and early 40s, it was a pudgy, cigar-smoking, unimpressive-looking man that held the country together. When others around him were shouting, Surrender, surrender, Sir Winston Churchill stood fast. Bombs devastated city blocks. Buildings crumbled. Bridges fell. But the stubborn prime minister refused to budge. Never once did he consider capitulating or even negotiating with the Nazi regime. Not once. He operated on a simple rule of thumb. And on numerous occasions, Churchill publicly stated that philosophy in six words. Those six words are and were, quote, Wars are not won by evacuations. Wars are not won by evacuations. Paraphrase, Churchill said that surrendering is not an option if we intend to win wars. And I contend surrendering is not an option if we want to survive marriage. Marriages aren't won through divorce. Understand that God has designed marriage to be permanent. And only under certain and rare exceptions does he permit it. This article is from David Lagerfeld, David Lagerfeld, a Baptist pastor from Tupelo, Mississippi. David wrote, her family had immigrated from Sweden. She had that typical Scandinavian look, long blonde hair, blue eyes, long slender legs, soft blemish-free skin. She was gorgeous. So much so that a professional international photographer thought she was so beautiful that he used a photograph of her to advertise his business. But that wasn't the most beautiful thing about her. She was raised by Christian parents and had become a Christian herself as a child. Integrity, honesty, and sweetness were just some of her characteristics. At her engagement party, her sister, who knew her better than anyone else, said she had never heard her even tell a lie. All her friends said the same things, that she was the sweetest girl they had ever known. She would never speak a harsh word about anyone, and everyone loved to be around her. Then another student she met her freshman year in college started dating her, and he totally fell in love with both her exterior photographic beautifulness and the attractive godly character of her inner self. She also fell in love with him. And the two of them spent every free moment they could with each other during the next four years. One week after graduation from college, the two were married. They loved each other's company. They would walk together, exercise together, go on bike rides together, chaperone youth trips together, go to movies, watch television, eat pizza, travel, all the things any normal couple would love to do together. They were so, so much in love. 
She taught school for a year and then became a bookkeeper for a surgical supply company. But then one morning at the office, for no apparent reason, she lost her balance and fell to the floor. She was able to get up, but decided to see a doctor that night. He examined her and recommended she see a neurologist. But then the next day it happened again. For no apparent reason she lost her balance and fell. This time though she couldn't get up. She had lost all feeling in her legs and they wouldn't move. Her husband rushed to the office, picked her up in his arms and carried her to the emergency room. After six days in the hospital the doctor came into the room and announced to this beautiful active young woman that she had multiple sclerosis and that her body would only continue to deteriorate. The couple who had now been married only 18 months, who loved to go everywhere together and do everything together, now face new challenges. All their future plans would change and everyday life would change. For the next 30 years, this young woman did deteriorate. She had to take anti-inflammatory steroids. Her bones became brittle and broke easily. Her face became puffy and bloated and she couldn't even put on makeup. Her body was an absolute mess. She went from a walker to an electric scooter to a wheelchair. She could no longer feed herself, write her name, or control her own bodily functions. She now had to have someone care for her 24 hours a day. If that couple had not had the kind of committed love that's based first on a personal relationship and a commitment to Jesus Christ, and second, on a love that's based on a commitment to each other, that marriage would have never lasted. In fact, a large percentage of the marriages were a spouse has MS, the other spouse leaves them. The other spouse can't bring themselves to be committed to the constant care and the continual physical, psychological, and mental changes that continue to occur. But this marriage did last. Even so, those two people are not heroes. They aren't super saints or super Christians. Those two people are normal, ordinary people empowered by a love for God and a love for each other to do what secular society considers way past normal and extraordinary. I know that for a fact. Because that woman, that beautiful young woman, who will never walk again, and who can't even feed herself, is Linda Lagerfeld, and she is my wife. She's not a hero, and I'm not a hero. We're just God's children doing what God's children are called to do, doing what God expects from every man and every woman who has ever made a covenant to God and to one another on their wedding day. We're just doing what God has called every husband and wife to do since the beginning of time. People, that's letting go. And that's holding on, and holding on, and holding on, no matter what. And that's marriage. Let's bow our heads. Father, I commit, I admit, I, um, I sometimes forget the commitment that I've made in marriage. I uh, take my mate for granted and often treat her less than she deserves to be treated, and I admit that as sin. I acknowledge that and repent from that. 
And if each of us were honest, we probably would say the same thing. Father, there are people in this room who have experienced divorce, and I, it might be a biblical divorce, it might be an unbiblical divorce, but I just want them to be able to, if it's an unbiblical divorce, if they need in their heart and mind to rectify that situation before you through confessing that to you and receiving forgiveness, I pray they'll do that now. If it was a biblical divorce, I know they feel unfortunate about it, but God, just help in either case, help them to put that behind them. You know, the past is the past. Tomorrow is a new day. And God, help them determine that whoever their mate is now, determine that this is it for the long haul. Help them to hold on and hang on to that mate in marriage. I thank you for this pastor and his wife who are so exemplary. Amazing. I often wonder, would we be that committed in marriage? I hope we're never called on to exercise that sort of a commitment. I would not pray anyone have a crippling disease. But God, we really should have that same commitment. Thank you for being patient with us. I hope this message has made sense. I hope no one leaves here with any unnecessary feeling of guilt. If there is something bothering them, I hope they'll approach me and we can talk about it and pray about it and we can resolve it. But God, help us to be determined, those of us who are married, to make it last. And for those who are not married but hope to be married someday, help them to see the perspective they should have about marriage. It's letting go and it's holding on. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.